Hi, I'm Naomi Castro, and this is the Castro Pod. This season, I talk with college presidents and nonprofit leaders who have things under control. What things? Cool things. Things. Things that improve the lives of the people around them. I want to learn how they do it. Like when you have a rich lifetime of experience and an opinion about everything, how do you keep your mind open and able to think differently? Dr. Regina Stanbeck Stroud was retired when we had this conversation, but yeah, that didn't last long. Since then, she's become the chancellor for the Peralta Community College District. Hmm, I'm seeing a pattern here. First Marvin Martinez, now Regina. Now, I'm not saying that being on my podcast gets you a better job, but it can't hurt. So I am here with the lovely, talented, and wonderful uh, Dr. Regina Stanbeck-Stroud, who I also count as a personal friend, um, but recently retired president of Skyline College. And um, I'm so I'm so excited, Regina. I'm so excited. Thank you. (laughs) So um, you were not born a college president. Um, Can you tell us just a little bit how how your journey led you to that place and and beyond? Sure. I commonly say that I have a non-traditional trajectory, but really it is a traditional non-traditional trajectory. And this is what I mean. Um, I entered the professional workforce uh, as a registered nurse and found that I was very, very interested in teaching. I always loved teaching. And I, I mean, I loved the notion of teaching. You know, I found that I was interested in teaching. And so when the nursing students would come up on the floor that I worked in an acute care setting, I would grab the nursing students and say, you want to learn how to take out sutures? Or do you want to learn how to work with, you know, balanced traction? Or do you, you know, I would ask them if they wanted to do certain procedures. And then in the course of them doing those procedures, I would be teaching them. And I found out that I really loved it. And it just so happened that, unfortunately, one of the instructors at the local community college was injured and they needed a substitute teacher for the year. And I ended up doing that for them and just fell in love with teaching nursing. Moved out to California, ended up with a position as a faculty member in a nursing department and did that for many, many years. Absolutely did, loved it, could have done it for the rest of my life. But in the course of being a professor, I got involved with the faculty issues and politics, and I got involved in the Academic Senate. It took very little time before I was a local Academic Senate president, then became the state Academic Senate president. And as the state Academic Senate president, that's where I was introduced to a lot of leadership issues and opportunities that you commonly don't get from a structural formal education process, and even from experiences at local colleges. So I was at the state level, advising or being engaged in the processes that advise the board, board of governors on academic and professional matters. I was testifying before the Senate Appropriations Committee. You know, I was working with the Assembly Committee on Higher Education and the staff that supported the Assemblywoman who was the chair of the Assembly Committee on Higher Education. So I had all of these different experiences learning how to navigate these different halls and these different environments that were not traditional education. And then when I finished doing that, I went back to my department at the college college, which meant that I had swam in a little bit bigger pond in terms of having discussions around issues, and I knew that I was wanting to do something different. I went on to become a dean of workforce and economic development, mostly because I was interested in working in anti-poverty, but I knew that I had to 
work <laughs> in order to do that, uh, became a dean of workforce and economic development and redefined that role at that college. So initially those positions were positions that were geared at serving business and helping business create a workforce. I wanted to transform it to where you serve the community and you support the community and being able to have access to those business environments and those business opportunities. So I ended up being a very successful, had a very successful tenure as a workforce and economic development dean in the Silicon Valley during the initial technology boom. It was rolling, and I was known nationally, I was known internationally for the work we were doing. We advised the British government on their development of their workforce development program. Uh, we toured the British, the English countryside, and I presented anywhere from, you know, out in the country or Sheffield, or I presented at 10 Downing. So it was a really very rewarding experience. Came back to... Um, if I get back to my, you know, trajectory in the community colleges, one of the presidents that I worked for said, you need to be a vice president. Now, when your president says you need to be a vice president and you're currently the dean, that sounds like you need to get out of here. <laughs> right. So I asked him, are you saying that I need to leave? Because I understand that that might be what he was saying. Or are you saying that you really see some potential in me to be able to take on a different job? He said, you need to be a vice president. You need to have much broader influence. So I said, I don't know anything about being a vice president. I don't know about enrollment management. I, you know, never been on a negotiating team. He, he gave me a job description and he said, I want you to look at this job description for a vice president. And I want you to circle everything you don't think you know or you have experience in. So I did. I was just going to show him how I was not prepared to be a vice president. There was no way I could be it. So I just circled everything that I had no experience in. And he proceeded to assign me to every single one of the things that I circled. He put me on the negotiation team. He put me involved in the allocation process for the enrollment stuff. I was just livid. <laughs> but within that one year, I had all of these experiences. So when I applied for a vice president position, uh, I was able to say, yes, I have experience in this. Well, I served on this particular committee, or it was my responsibility to do it. Yes, I've been on the negotiating team. It was a phenomenal development process that I had no idea that that's what I was doing. But he, but he did. So he was very supportive. Then I became the, pres the vice president. I was the vice president for 12 years, 11 years. I could have done that for the rest of my life. And... Uh, actually, my wife said, you need to look at being a president. And I said, but I can't be a president. I don't really know this. And, you know, there are people that are relying on you for that. And, you know, I just don't think I'm ready. And she said to me, will you look at who's presidents now? Meaning just look in the field and you're going to tell me that you don't have similar talents or even better talents. And so I actually started considering it, and I applied for the presidency. I first applied at Merritt. I didn't get that position, and um, I applied at the College of Alameda, where I was invited uh, to be uh, a uh, to interview. However, uh, to be a finalist. Uh, however, in the course of me doing that the presidency for Skyline College opened up and I decided that I really was committed to Skyline College and would prefer to be there and engage in leadership there. So I became, I applied for and became the president of Skyline College. And so that took me from being a registered nurse um, to, uh, you know, 
an executive leadership position and ultimately CEO. That is amazing. I'm just reflecting on what a wonderful president you had who, when you were Dean and uh, I've been doing a lot of reading and listening to podcasts talking about um, supervision as mentoring and guiding. And yeah, it just, that, that just makes, that squares that circle for me. Thank you. And you've, and we talked a little bit before we started about, uh, the, the joy in that we experienced in our leadership programs or doctoral programs and how much fun it is to keep learning. So one of the things that's become really apparent, uh, through this project, Mm -hmm. um, is that, uh, effective leaders continue to learn. Absolutely. So I'm wondering what, if, if there's a particular area or a particular book or movie or anything right now that has sparked some more learning for you? Mm-hmm. So for me now, I, I can tell you that I'm interested in almost everything because I have this sense of responsibility. For an example, uh, there was a period of time when there was a lot of work about how to have effective teams. I was trying to devour all of the team stuff, doing the five dysfunctions of the team, trying to how to have effective teams. I did some of the work by the professors that are at Harvard that did a lot of that teamwork. I can't remember their names now, but I read two or three of their books. And I, I was just really working into teams because I was trying to apply that to my institution and to my leadership. So one of the things I'll tell you that if you're interested in leadership and you're interested in really effective leadership. Some of the good work uh, that I've seen is Patrick Lencioni's work on the five dysfunctions of uh, a team. Uh, it's, it's consumable. It's, um, it's, it's accessible. In other words, it's not a lot of academic jargon. It's just accessible, and it's just good, pragmatic work um, that uh, I have used and seen the results of even in my own organization. So that's some of the work that I'm doing. But now that I'm retired uh, and I'm trying to figure out how do you take this 35 years worth of work and knowledge and wisdom and you know things that you learn from either doing really great things or making lots of mistakes, how do you take that and make it accessible to others and make it so that it is of some benefit to somebody other than yourself? And so now I'm exploring things like, you know, executive coaching and how do you how do you support people who are, you know, achieved and accomplished in their own right, but are trying to figure out how to navigate certain issues or how to navigate certain environments or how to even progress through certain systems, you know, and, you know, of course, I'm. My personality is I got an opinion about everything. You just ask me about anything. <laughs> I have an opinion about it. But I recognize that that there is a method in which you can be effective and supportive and that it's not just something that you do off, you know, off the cuff. So the whole art of executive coaching and stuff is, some, is something that I'm now you know, exploring and reading about and trying to figure out if I want to be certified in, et cetera. The other thing, even though it's going to sound like it's completely not related, is that I am engaged in learning a second language. I speak English fluently. I slaughter Spanish, but I can get through things. I can have a you know conversation as long as you stay in the present tense. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I can I can manage. And my love is French. And I've never formally studied French. So now I'm in uh, French instruction. And that is actually something that I have found to be very stimulating just intellectually. But also it keeps your mind 
open and able to see, at least for me, I feel like I'm able to like catch nuances of issues or things that I uh, would not have caught before because I'm having to think differently. I'm having to look at things in a different perspective. Uh, it's not it's not what I call auto script, you know. So that actually is something that I would say that people who are in leadership positions do whatever it is that keeps your mind stimulated, whether it's reading academic articles, learning another language, figuring out how to swim, whatever it might be, you know. And is it, do you think it's something to do with just keeping you sharp on your toes or is it being a beginner again? It's all of that. It's having empathy for, okay, so I, you know, my, my politics are very progressive. So I, I, I didn't have to study French in order to have empathy for others who are here who are trying to learn language. But I can tell you that it's sharper and more clear the struggle that someone might have to do something that is so very basic for me. And I'll give you an example. One time Linda and I were traveling abroad and we were in Italy. And, you know, I took an Italian class before we went to Italy and I tried to figure out how to learn a few things basically so I could make sure I could order the gelato correctly. (laughs) And uh, this was uh, many years ago that uh, we were sending postcards back. And we had like 20-something postcards. And we go into, I have to go to the post office. We go into the post office and I have to stand in line and I have to order stamps. And I have to figure out, I've already looked it up online. I've already figured out how do you say I need to buy stamps. Please, God, don't ask me any other question or put any kind of quantifier around it or anything. Or I don't know what you're talking about, right? So I do that. People were like frustrated with me. They were like making noises. You know, they were blowing hard and stuff because they were waiting in line. You're at a post office, right? I got through it. Oh, God, it was painful. Now, now understand that I was coming from at that time I was a vice president. So I was coming from a space where I'm typically respected. Uh, and if people are frustrated with something that you're doing, they're not so openly hostile. You know, they're a little bit more strategic, right? So I, I, I wasn't accustomed to experiencing that, though I can talk to you about other things I have experienced to be in these, being African-American in these United States. However, I, I get out of that line. I'm, I've mailed the postcards. It's a 25-minute experience. I get back to the car, and Linda says, babe, you left one. I was like, please, please don't make me go back in there. That was just simply trying to mail a postcard. So I see people here trying to navigate major issues that impact their lives and their children's lives, trying to do it in a second language. You know, so for me, it just gives me an empathy that is far more clearer than I had or have had as a result of just my basic progressive politics. Does that make sense? That makes so much sense. That's a great example. Yeah. Yeah. I I did want to ask about early influences or not not necessarily early, continuous influences on your leadership style. And Mm -hmm. would you, do you have a categorization for your leadership style? Yes. Okay. Well, tell us, tell us. So I do have a framework um, and that's the result of 30 years of work and it's the result of um, um, 
a doctoral degree, <laughs> you know. Uh, and so I do lead with a framework that's called Leading to Transgress. And it is uh, simply a framework that is, is multiracial, is multi, it's gender informed, um, and it is designed, it's situated closely to the masses of marginalized people, and it is designed um, to use your position of influence and consequence in order to reallocate resources to deconstruct and break down systems of power and privilege, traditional systems of power and privilege. Uh, and so what that means is, and I, and I, I, I have a statement, I'll, I'll give it to you. Uh, I, I used to post this statement on my computer uh, so that when I was trying to, when I was struggling with different things, when I was struggling with different things, I would say, okay, well, what do I fundamentally believed? You know, so I, I have a leadership framework that is grounded in equity and social justice because I was interested in making sure that I use my position of influence and consequence in order to lead toward the mitigation of systems of oppression and in order to uh, lead toward social justice. Uh, so what informs that? Uh, well, <laughs> as the uh, tour guide on, when we were in Ireland would say, anytime we ask him a question, anytime we could ask him a question about something today, he would say, well, to answer that, I'd have to take you back to 1658. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what informs this? To answer that, I'd have to take you back to my childhood. Uh, I was raised in the segregated South, but I was raised by a mother who believed in education as a practice of freedom. Now, she didn't use those words. As a matter of fact, she wasn't formally educated, but she knew that education was the key for us. And she knew that it was the means by which we would be able to at least fight or escape um, the systems of racism, which was, you know, legally sanctioned brutality and oppression against African-American people in these United States. So she said they can take everything away from you, but they cannot take this. So I'm, I'm pointing to my head. Um, and that was the key for all of us. So she had four children, two girls, two boys. The question wasn't whether we would go to college or not. It was where we would go to college, but not whether we would go. And she was a minimum wage worker. So we had to make sure that we were trying to, we had a means to go. My father died in the military. So we had the GI Bill. And we all grew up, you know how you know when you go, like from first grade, you go to second grade automatically, and you go from third, second grade to third grade, and it's automatic. It's not like you got a choice to say, well, I don't think I'm going to go to third grade, you know, or I don't think I'm going to go to high school. You know, it's compulsory, right? All four of us did not know that you had a choice not to go to college. It, it, we, we thought that, okay, you finish high school and you have to go to college, like, otherwise it's illegal, you know? And my mother never disabused us of that notion, you know, <laughs> so we all went to college. Um, and some of us, you know, all of us now, my my one brother has two master's degree, another brother has a master's degree. I have two master's degree and a doctorate degree. And my sister, who is who, you know, is the year younger than I, has an associate's degree and has, you know, spent her life trying to achieve, you know, her next degree, you know, so, but we all understand the value of education. So that informs me and it informs my leadership perspective. Now there are lots of other things that happen in my life, you know, that inform me, my experiences. I went to Howard University. I had examples of great leadership and I also had examples of really bad leadership. So I learned in the course of my profession, in the course of my education uh, and profession, professional experience, I learned what I aspired to and what I didn't want to do. So, I've, and I paid attention. 
especially I remember being uh, the Senate president at a local college. And uh, I was constantly up against issues with the vice president of student services. And, you know, from my perspective, she was constantly wrong, but she was constantly winning. And so I just decided to stop and pay attention to her. What it, I listened to her voice. I looked at her mannerisms. I looked at her gestures. I paid attention to the sequence of how she formed her ideas, like whatever came out of her mouth first. And then I paid attention to the patterns and figured out that whatever she says first is the thing that she's most concerned about. You know, I, I just paid attention to everything. And I wanted to be as effective as she was, but I wanted to do it because I thought that I was right on the right side of issues. Uh, and I learned from her, even though I was constantly on the other side of the table from her in terms of the issues or my perspective, I learned a lot from her. I emulated her voice. I emulated her mannerisms. I paid attention to her style, her disposition. I learned a lot from her. Wow. <laughs> so do you do you uh, fall in the camp? So, uh, do, do you believe we have uh, opponents or enemies? I don't think we have either one of them. I think that we there are people who think differently than I do. And I used to have this saying, you know, I'm, I'm working on respecting the right of people to think differently than I do, no matter how wrong they are. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I think that there are people who think differently than I do. And I actually believe that, you know, when people have all of the information, that they'll come to similar decisions. Might be some nuances in how you do certain things, except there are ways in which we are informed by our own biases. We are informed by our own, our own ideologies, our backgrounds, our perspectives. And so it might be different decisions, but I don't consider the people opponents. I don't consider them enemies. I just consider that they have a different perspective or a different opinion than I do or a different idea than I do. Wow, I've got a lot of growth to do because I, 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 I was very happy that I had moved from my younger years of having enemies to now having opponents. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I can I can keep moving in that direction. You know, you, you you can you can test me, you can challenge me, you can say, okay, well, what about uh, you know, what about like to me the ultimate ultimately uh, the ultimate difference uh, exists in the way the person who is in the White House um, perceives and sees and and um, tries to make things happen. And I, I mean, th the difference between us is great. Uh, I fundamentally disagree and disrespect most that comes out of that administration. Um, the people aren't the enemies, even though I am reduced sometimes to wishing bad things. <laughs> you know, the people aren't the enemy uh, of me, but I fundamentally disrespect and and uh, have contempt for the ideas that they put forward. I mean, I, f I fundamentally do not respect white nationalism. And that's what I experience. What I'm experiencing now is that we have a white supremacist in the White House and that the consequences of that is showing up in our policies and is showing up in the ways in which we are defined as a nation. Uh, and it that means it influences everything and influences all of our institutions, whether it's our finance institutions, our educational institutions, our religious institutions. It influences so many different things. Um, I still don't have the enemy and the people, you yeah. know, because the the people are just 
you know, they're they're just flawed from my perspective. But I fundamentally am opposed to and have an enemy in the ideas that they're perpetuating. My my father uh, lives in a very rural community in Louisiana, uh, so rural that uh, it, it, for a time they had a volunteer fire department because there yeah. was no professional fire department in their parish, their okay. parishes instead of counties. Yes. And so he was on the volunteer fire department. And he's a progressive, liberal, hippie guy um, living in, in Louisiana. rural Louisiana. And so uh, one time he was... They were called out to a fire and they pulled up to the house. The house was on fire. The residents were outside trying to fight it with a hose. And uh, and there was a giant Confederate flag hanging from the window. And he said it was the only time he ever paused and thought, am I going to help save this house? Right. And he came to the very quickly to the Good decision, solution. of course I am. Of yeah. course I am. Um, but he said, it, you know, it gave him pause. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it challenges us to be the people that we say we are or that we think we are, that we aspire to be. At least for me, it does. I mean, I, I, I you know, I come from a background of compassion and humanitarianism, but I, I have not had a single good wish for a single person in that administration. <laughs> you know, and, you know, if were I to be challenged, you know, the, the quite frankly, I'm not able to conjure it up right now, you know, <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is, that is very refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> also just because. It means I'm human. <laughs> it just means, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not, it's certainly not how the media portrays um, folks with very different opinions. It often right. portrays us as hating each other or, uh, you know, demonizing each other. And, yeah. you know, certainly people do that, but we can strive to be our better selves yeah. and not do that. You know, that might be, um, you know, that's in, in all fairness, that's an extreme example. When I bring it to the workplace, when I bring it to where I'm, you know, applying leadership skills, it's easier to say, OK, look, just because people believe this or support this and I don't <clears throat> support exit testing, I don't. It's easier for me to say, look, that doesn't make them bad people. It just makes them think differently than I do. I'm, it's easier for me to do that. Whereas when I see somebody that's representing kind of the brutality of white nationalism, that's a harder job for me to separate the people from the issue. You know, it's just work we have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I'd like to change gears just, okay. just a little bit. Um, although thank you for all of that. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things I was really interested in, the, the most motivating question I had uh, because of some particular um, things in my professional work um, was this seeming contradiction, and you may say it's not a contradiction, when you're leading an organization or an institution, um, our, in the nonprofit world and in the community college world, uh, the folks that work there are, are mission-driven by and large. And, you know, you don't go into nonprofit or community college work because you you're chasing big bucks or because, you know, you, you go in because you think you're, you're, you're contributing to doing something good. Um, although, you know, maybe some of the folks chasing big bucks think they're doing good too. That's, that's great. Um, but we, we tend to hire folks who are really good at what they do and, and have a high level of autonomy or value a high level of autonomy. But the organization also has some unifying principles or mission. 
Um, and sometimes, and it, it, those things might be at odds at times. Absolutely. Or in particular, if you get down to kind of nitty gritty things like branding your institution or your organization, um, and, and that's, you know, that might seem superficial, but I don't, I don't think so. Um, and so how do you find that Goldilocks zone between allowing folks to do what they want to do, the way they want to do it, their autonomy, um, with creating this unified, cohesive group? Okay. So the, the, the response I'll give you to that, I'll give to you on that is going to sound like um, it's, uh, easy, uh, but trust me, it's not easy. It's easier said than done. One of the things that for me uh, is really important is that I bring in really good people because I did see hiring as one of the responsibilities that was most important in my role. And I took it very, very seriously and I engaged in it in a very intentional and deliberate way so that I would be able to bring into that institution people that would support the mission of that institution, that would want to serve the communities that we were serving, and that would see it from a perspective, um, of uh, an equity-based perspective. So I was I was very attentive to, to hiring, and I can talk to you about that at another time if you'd like, um, because I did many, many different things <clears throat> than traditionally is done. Um. And then you bring in people, and uh, it's not so easy because the very talent you wanted is the very thing that may be presented to you that will give you the challenge on some things. So as a president of the college, it's my responsibility to provide that leadership, help set that agenda, though not in a vacuum. It's, I mean, it's informed by all of the work that people do and the perspectives of the people in the institution and the community needs and those types of things. But then, you know, I see that as my responsibility in providing that leadership. But then I've also hired people who have their own perspectives and have talents to be able to support those perspectives um, and uh, in their own right and legitimately so, you know, make those perspectives known. So I'll give you a good example is I hired a gentleman named uh, Mustafa Popal, brilliant young man. Uh, and when I hired him, I, 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 when I hired him, when he left the room, I said to the team, this is a phenomenal person. I said, I am going to hire him. He is going to come here. I know he's going to start the revolution and he's going to give me headaches, but he will make this institution better. Right now, I tease Mustafa all the time because anytime he does something and I, you know, uh, or he's challenging us or something like that, which I count on <clears throat> him to do and I count on faculty to do, staff to do. I say, I knew it. I knew you were going to start the revolution. You know, I tease him all the time. But that's how our our college uh, goes from, that's how our college shows up differently. That's how we, we go beyond being just good. You know what I mean? I almost used the cliche says goes from good to great, but we actually did use that framework in order to make sure that we weren't just good enough, but that we were really a great institution for the community that we serve, you know? So yes, you're going to have that when people come in because you're, that's the talent that you're hiring. Um, but it makes your institution better. And so the key is from your perspective is to make sure you have enough self-reflection and that make sure that you're uh, examining your own perspectives to realize that you may not have it right 
uh, or your interpretation may not be it. Um, or you have to kind of trust that uh, other ideas will serve us well. Uh, I'll give you a good example. When I was first kind of conscious of it, um, we were developing the uh, materials for to let everybody know that we had the shuttle available from BART that would be free. I've taken that shuttle. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> of course. And uh, in developing the materials, the, all of the staff in the marketing office in the public relations area, they sent all of these different brochures and images and things. For me, that was the craziest stuff I had ever seen. It was like, it looked like, I don't know, I, I couldn't connect to it at all. I couldn't connect to it at all. It wasn't like crisp enough and professional enough. And, and what I finally decided was to get out of their way because they understood the field and they also had different experiences. They were younger people, for an example, that were trying to connect to younger people, et cetera. And just because I, as a CEO president, haven't gone through kind of these, the formal stages in my life, it didn't connect with me. It might connect with people who need to be students at that college. And so I had to make the decision just in my mind, and it wasn't a hard decision to make, to trust that they knew what they were doing and that it would serve us. It was the best decision. The, the process was exponentially successful. We thought that we would get like 1,000 people. We had ridership of like 6,000 in the beginning. Uh, you know, I mean, just it just was exponentially successful. And uh, I was glad that I, it taught me, you know, like I don't even hesitate, you know. The director would say, do I need to run these things by you? Or she would try to run things by me. I'm like, if you know, if you recommend that this is it, let's do this. You know, so I, I stayed close enough to give guidance and make sure that we were, you know, ha that we were within the construct of the institution, the framework of the institution, but gave them freedom to do their do their thing and show their talents and share their talents so that the, the institution could benefit from it. I really well, I appreciate all of that. That's fantastic. A lot of mirrors. So yeah. we talk about mirrors and That's windows, right. so a That's lot right. of mirrors. Um, but I also love uh, everything that I've seen come out recently from the oh. marketing department. It's yes. so good. And one of the things I saw was, uh, maybe it was at your retirement celebration, um, something that said, Skyline, we got your back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We got your books, we got your back. We mm -hmm. got your books, we got yeah. your back. I love yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. Thank you. You've given me a lot to think about. Yeah. Um, an, another question that I had um, that was very specific, you know, I, I've heard plenty of podcasts or interviews where they talk about making hard decisions and the leader being interviewed talks about combining the decisions or bringing people together to a consensus. But um, sometimes there's parameters that just, you can't do that all the time. I mean, when you can, right. and it's something better, great. Sometimes you do that and something not so good. That's right. So I'm much more interested in how you make the decision when you have to choose between two really great things, but you cannot combine them. Or if you have to make a decision where you're choosing between two things that you don't really like either of them, but mm -hmm. because of time or other external constraints, you've got to choose one. Right. How do you do that? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any, I don't have any magic formula for it. I can tell you that one of the things that I try to stay focused on is what is my leadership framework? 
and then what is the ultimately the board and the chancellor trying to accomplish, right? Uh, so sometimes you can get to those types of things. Well, what what does the strategic plan say? What did the you know what did we say in our master plan? Those types of things. Sometimes it's not so connected that way, and it's like, do you go with this one or that one? I'll give you a good example. Uh, we never had. Uh, we, we had one African-American faculty member in math. How many, how many total math faculty about? 20 something, okay. 28, uh, well, m- many more if you count, uh, adjunct. adjunct, right. But one African-American faculty member who was a woman and she retired. Uh, and we were getting, we were hiring new math faculty and, Two faculty came through that were phenomenal. Lots of people came through that were phenomenal, but two of the finalists. One was an Asian woman who was phenomenally successful with students, and students loved her. Our college is predominantly Asian student population, uh, so it was wonderful that the students would be able to, you know, see themselves in her, but also the students who didn't look like her would be able to see um, role models as well. And the other one was this African-American man, a young African-American man that uh, just was phenomenal. And I struggled because both of them were equally good faculty member, were equally successful with students, were equally loved by students. And I had to figure out what to do. And uh, in the end, I was not willing. I, I kept changing the scenario. I kept saying, you know, how how do I tell the story that, you know, this person came to me, this woman came to me, uh, connected to the community, loved by the students, phenomenally uh, qualified, and I didn't hire her. Regardless of what else, else was going on, how do I tell that story? How do I tell the story that this African-American man came to me, connected to the students, phenomenally successful, phenomenally qualified and I didn't hire him and I was not willing to tell those two stories. So I went back and I said to the budget officer, I said, create another position. She said, oh, we didn't go through the process. We don't have the money. I said, there is always money. It's just how you prioritize it. I am not turning away either one of these. So the first, the, the reason I'm telling you this story is because I don't necessarily accept the premise that I have to choose one, that I can't make this decision or that decision, or that these won't go together, right? Because when you're in a position of influence and consequence, you can change that premise. So I I, I don't necessarily start with, oh, woe is me, what am I going to do? I can't do but this, right? And then if I get to where, then I have to make a hard decision, and I can't make that change, or I can't I can't pick both, or whatever it might be. Uh, or one is mutually exclusive of the other. You know, if you do this one, then that means this one can't, right? Then I do a lot more work. Uh, I do a lot more work with regard to figuring out the consequences, talking to people, um, ultimately making decision. The The thing is that I am not I am not shy or reserved about ultimately making a decision or making a hard decision. I won't go in through, go to analysis paralysis, but I will take the time to get all of the information and make the best decision that I can. You know, so it is about listening to people. Um, and in the end, I own it. 
in the end, it's my, I'm not I'm not shy about owning the decision. I, one time we had a hiring process, and um, I was meeting with the faculty and and the the screening committee, and I was explaining to them what happens at the last level because they had been working with other presidents. And I said, at the last level, it really is an interview with me. You have a right to be in there to observe. I ask you to participate because it's that way. It's not awkward for the candidates, but it is an interview with me. And ultimately, I will ask for your information and your input, but ultimately, I will make the decision. And the faculty member said to me that was in there, who had been on lots of committees, she said, you mean we don't vote? I said, absolutely not. This is my responsibility. It is part of the accreditation standards that I'm responsible for the hiring and development of employees and making sure that people come in that have the qualifications that they're supposed to have. Uh, And I am not willing to abrogate that responsibility. So absolutely no, we do not vote. It was a surprise, right? Not the popular decision either. You know, there was talk about it and people, you know, went back to the departments and they didn't know whether they wanted to serve on committees. Up to you. But I'm not willing to abrogate that responsibility. So I'm not shy about making a decision. I own it. And sometimes those decisions are the right decision. And, whew, you know, we got it right. And, so, and we don't always get it right. Sometimes I get it wrong, you know. Sometimes I get it wrong. What do you do? So if you if you make a decision and then maybe a few months later you you do do some of that mirror work and you go, oh, or maybe it's a window and you say, wow, that was that was the wrong move. Then then what do you do? Uh, A couple of things. And I can I'm thinking of one particular instance. So um, uh, I'll talk about it in the context of that particular instance, although it may not necessarily apply to, you know, generic. Uh, I made a hire. It was the biggest hiring mistake in my profession. It took me a few weeks to recognize it. Uh, It was such a shock. Uh, And what I've realized is that everybody around me that knew before I did that this was a mistake was trying to be supportive of my decision. And that was people who were, you know, on my executive level, people who were in the faculty ranks, people who were staff. It was a means of supporting me that they that I did not know the horrors of the impact of that decision. Right. Uh, And then ultimately I learned it. And well, ultimately I started seeing things and I started talking to asking for information. And that's when I learned it. And then I was just as quick to make the next decision, which was mean, help them move on. That means I had to be smart. I had to get the human resources stuff all taken care of. I had to figure out a way to work with the people so that I'm not destroying that person, but just help them recognize this is not a good fit for either one of us. Neither one of us are happy with what's happening, right? That was hard work. Uh, It wasn't the easiest thing at all because this affects people's lives, they their families are affected um but i could not have it destroying or having or causing harm to the institution and i had to i had to do something about it then i had to uh i don't know however you say i had to make sure that the community the college understood that i owned that mistake and that first of all i apologized to the to the people that were impacted and admitted that i was wrong 
right? And I said that out loud and I said it publicly so that people would feel comfortable in the future coming to say, this ain't a good decision, right? And they would see that it's not necessarily a means of lack of support for them to say that. So I admitted it out loud publicly. I honored the work that had been done, but I also, with some care, tried to take care of the person that was in in that that was involved in it because that's a that that impacts your life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it, again, back to the not having opponents or enemies. Just this is this was not a right fit. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So one of the books that was recommended by another interview in this series uh, was is uh, Radical Candor. The author talks quite a lot about. Um, helping your um, staff to also engage in radical candor with you Mm -hmm. um, and being receptive to that. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole thing. (laughs) It's a whole thing, (laughs) but yeah, it's been very helpful for me. And I've experienced different levels. I experienced uh, people not really wanting to say um, certain things because they are being supportive. And uh, I've experienced people in my face about certain things oh yeah uh because because they feel it's their right or their entitlement to to be so um and what i try to do is i try to be i try to create a situation where people will be honest with me uh but i'm not willing i am not willing all in the interest of honesty and taking things etc i am not willing to take abuse absolutely i am not willing to be abused or mistreated i'm willing to be to, to be treated in ways that I treat p- other people. Yeah. Which goes back to talking about ideas and viewpoints yeah. uh, and, you know, procedures, but not the yeah. individual. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I am known to play to win. <laughs> now, I am, I am a woman on a mission on many, many things. And I don't feel like I have the luxury of mediocrity. I feel like I have to be intentional and deliberate around many, many issues uh, so I do play to win. And what I mean by that is doesn't, I don't mean it in like, you know, competitive, we're better than you, et cetera. I mean, I play to succeed. You know, I'm not hesitant. Play to win is a term that we use in cards. There's a game that we played in the South called Bitwis. And, you know, you can't be shy about, you know, pulling Trump. You have to play to win, right? So you don't like put out your king so that, you know, et cetera. You, if you got the ace, you put it out there, right? <laughs> so it's a term that I grew up with saying play to win, you know, like don't, don't, don't be apologetic about being in leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. We we have just a, a few more questions and then, and we're going to do, some of these are going to be a little rapid fire. Um, but uh, is there a book that you find that you've been recommending quite a lot lately or a podcast? Uh, well, the book that I have been recommended is Lencioni's uh, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Excellent. Uh, but the last three recommendations that I gave <laughs> were stamped from the beginning <laughs> because I believe in understanding critical race literacy, you know, so stamp from the beginning is something that I think every executive needs to read because people don't know our history in these United States. And then do you have, so this is more of a, like a a life hack kind of a thing. Do you have a particular routine in the morning or at the end of the day that you tribute to helping set your intentions or, you know, anything? So, um, 
I used to have a routine when I worked that is different than my routine now when I'm retired and running this consultancy. That is good to hear. <laughs> yeah. So it, when I worked, my routine, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I had no routine in the morning that would be you would be able to refer to as, oh, this is when this leader did reflection and <laughs> planned out her day. You know, my routine was to get up, get out of here and get into that institution uh, and be available. Right. And sometimes I hit the ground running and I didn't have time to breathe. And that was constant. All the time. There wasn't time for self-reflection. There wasn't time to think. There wasn't time to prepare. You know, that just was the reality of the work. And I, I started trying to do certain things in order to have that kind of time, literally scheduling think time and bathroom time and lunch times, literally scheduling on the calendar. Uh, and then uh, when I would get home, that would be the time when I saw the love of my life and that I could, you know, we could debrief on the day or we could binge watch, you know, so that I would escape. And I will admit that after this election, I did, I had to do a lot of escaping. You know, I had to like escape from the news. I used to watch Rachel Maddow a lot, but I even got to where I couldn't, I couldn't hear it anymore to, to learn what was happening. So I had to get, I had to fortify myself in order to be able to stay abreast with what was going on. Uh, so that when I worked, I did those and it did change because it used to be that I took a lot of work home. Uh, but at, in my presidency, I made a conscious decision to stand up and walk out at 430 so in other words, set some boundaries on it and very seldom took work home, very seldom. So I, I, I wasn't up writing the grant and, you know, those types of things. Now that I'm retired, uh, my routine is uh, a little different. So uh, one of the things that I have to do, because if I don't do it before I come downstairs, is I have to shower and get dressed before I come downstairs. Otherwise, it might not happen today. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't have any place to go and be out for real, right? Just because I get down here and I get involved in the things that I'm doing. So before you came this morning, I came down, had coffee, I'm in my robe and I got involved. I had to do uh, some French homework. So I've been doing French homework since seven o'clock this morning until you arrived at the door. Right. So it wasn't, there wasn't a snowball's chance that I would be able to get out of this robe in order to, in order to start the day. So I, I'm conscious and, and I'm deliberate about making sure that I get up, hop out of the bed, get in the shower, and, get, and before I come downstairs. Um, I, I, my routine during the day is I, I schedule very specific time around work. I have clients, for an example. Uh, so I try to schedule uh, time to, that I can be prepared for the clients as well as meet with the clients and then, you know, do work for the clients once I'm no longer meeting with them. And then in the evening, it's similar. Once Linda gets home, I try to make sure all of that is done and that, that my attention is you know, with her, with my family, that we're calling Camille to see her on duo so that she can, you know, ignore us or whatever it might be that she's <laughs> doing for the day because she's got the new toy. You know, it's those types of things. Camille is your beautiful granddaughter. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to do a series of rapid fire questions. Oh, actually, wait, before we do the rapid fire, is there any song or type of music that you're listening to more these days? Um I listen to a lot of, I listen to a lot of music that, um, I listen to French music. I listen to, you know, R&B, 
I listen to rap. Uh, I listen to just about anything other than <clears throat> uh, country music. And it's just because, you know, I come from the segregated South and country music means something differently. It has a different space and different place in, in my life. Uh, so um, I'm not I'm not that connected to that. So I listen to a lot of different kinds of music. Um, some of my favorite music is along the tracks of um, uh, Escobar, Damien Escobar, um, who's a violinist. He's actually a rap artist that is a classical violinist, and he plays contemporary music in, on violin. It's phenomenal. So Damien Escobar. But I also listen to the genre like uh, Maxwell. You know, excellent. Yeah, very eclectic. <laughs> okay, rapid fire. Don't don't think about it too much. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Beatles or Rolling Stones? Neither one. Neither. Who would you put in instead? Uh, Damien Escobar. There we go. <laughs> Maxwell. <laughs> Favorite flavor of ice cream? Chocolate. Best one hundred dollars you ever spent? Passport. They're more than a hundred now. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> and last one. Do you have a guilty pleasure? Yeah. Yeah. I have lots of guilty pleasures, to be honest. Um, okay, it's a couple of things. One, I love to eat. I'm just telling you I love to eat. I like I like good food. So I love to cook. So I like good food. I like to try different foods. Uh I like to try the things that I cook and this didn't work out, so then I try something else, etc. So so my guilty pleasure is around uh, preparing, serving, eating, uh, doing anything with food, you know, socializing around food. I love food. I love with food. I care with food. I, I do everything with food. Right. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, the, but the other guilty pleasure I have is I just, I love to binge watch. <laughs> I do. We just finished the handmaiden's tale. It all started with, uh, a long time ago, when Linda and I first started seeing each other, neither one of us watched TV. Uh, she didn't own a TV, and I had one, but it wasn't plugged in. That's how that's how <laughs> it was. And we made the mistake of watching Twenty Four. That was when you went to the to Blockbuster and got the series and came back, and then had to go back and get the next one because somebody had number six checked out and all that kind of stuff. We watched Twenty Four, and every time that little clock would come on and say dun 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 dun. We say, want to watch another one? <laughs> <laughs> so we would binge watch. <laughs> that was our first experience binge watching where you don't even like take your pajamas off for the weekend. We binge watch at three o'clock in the morning, want to watch another one. <laughs> so, but now we are a little bit more sophisticated with our watching, but we still, we love to, I love to binge watch. I'll say it like Fantastic. that. Fantastic. And uh, you mentioned Handmaiden's Tale, but any, anything else? Oh, we're watching Succession now, Handmaid's Tale, Wentworth, you know, the Australian uh, uh, series and the British series are pretty good. Any of the detective series. We don't do like, um, I have a hard time with the murders, with murder sure. series and stuff. Uh, but just any of those where, you know, some, some of them are the kind of strong women series or the femme fatale series or, you know. <laughs> Tons of them. <laughs> Excellent. Regina, thank you so much for spending some time with me this morning. This has been wonderful. It's been my pleasure. 
The books Regina recommended and the organizations she mentions are all in the show notes. There's also a link to Damien Escobar. He's the New York crossover violinist whose style marries classical, R&B, jazz, and hip-hop. And you can also check out the transcripts at castropod.com. 